welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Amber O'Hearn is a Canadian data scientist by profession, with a background in mathematics, computer science, psychology, and more recently, evolutionary nutrition and biology. She has been studying and experimenting with low-carb, ketogenic, and carnivore diets since 1997. Due to her health issues, which she has been able to manage with her diet, she has eaten a nearly plant-free diet since 2009. She has authored many publications, given several presentations on stages all over the world, and has been sharing her discoveries on social media ever since, becoming an absolute expert and beacon of light in the world of nutrition. You can find her extensive work and blogs at facultativecarnivore.com or follow her at Keto Carnivore on Twitter. Amber O'Hearn, it's an absolute honor to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. You have been in this world for a very long time. Um, <laughs> I'm guessing you didn't just uh, walk over to the, the store a few weeks ago and read a trendy magazine that was talking about the carnivore diet. <laughs> you have been at this for a very, very long time. and We're super curious to hear about your story and how this all started. And, and boy, like, again, the leading edge of of you know, this kind of a strange diet, you know, can you tell us how you were able to find the carnivore diet? Yes, you're right. It's, it's been a long time. In fact, it's been uh, half my life now that I've been on a low carb diet, turned 48 this year and I was 24 when I found that, Wow. which was, uh, I guess you would say a, a weight, <laughs> a weight derived kind of motivation, which ironically, in some ways, is how I found carnivore too, because the low carb diet, which I had been on for a dozen years, it although it was very effective for me for body composition, when I first found it over the years, and I don't know exactly what the reasons are, could have been aging, or it could have been uh, because of antidepressants, which I had been taking for a long time, or pregnancies or many other reasons, but my weight had started going up again. In fact, much, much higher than it had been before I found a low carb diet. And so once again, I was driven by vanity to, <laughs> to look for other solutions. And that was when I came across this at the time, very obscure. I mean, I would even say the carnivore diet is still obscure, but at that time it was essentially unheard of. Oh, totally. And I just found a forum where there were a small group of people who had started doing what they called at the time zero carb, which is a very confusing name. Carnivore has its drawbacks as well, but with zero carb, it sounds like as long as you are not eating anything high in carbohydrates, then that would be acceptable on the diet, but it's really about plants versus animal foods. So even though eggs have some level of, of carbs in them and, and liver does and shellfish does, those would still be fine on a carnivore diet. Whereas something like olive oil, which literally is zero carb, wouldn't be. Mm. And so there are people doing this diet and they were, uh, many of them had a similar kind of background to me where they had been on a low carb diet and it just wasn't, wasn't doing everything that they were hoping it would do or they were stalled out and found more weight loss success during a, a plant-free diet. But actually the name of the forum that I was looking at was called zeroing in on health. 
And I think that that's really significant because the people were gathered around that topic, maybe because like me, they were drawn to finding ideas about how to improve their weight. But what they were finding was surprising improvements in health, even back at that time. And so that was the focus of that. And that's that's how I found it. it. It was really just an accident and really out of reasons that are not the reasons that I've stayed. Wow. I'm really curious, like, what was the vibe in that group? Like, did were people really, like, I don't know, like, upfront about it? Or was it kind of just, like, more in the shadows? Because you're right, it was a little bit taboo back then, I would think. <laughs> well, we I think we did feel like it was a place where it was okay <laughs> to not eat vegetables. <laughs> and, um, in fact, I would almost say there was a very strong... Um, do this or, or go do something else. <laughs> Not that, you know, anyone was saying you have to eat this way, but we're not going to be apologetic for what we're doing. And that was very freeing because in other places, you know, some places, other forums were starting to talk about doing uh, zero carb. And sometimes there'd be a lot of shaming around that. Like, no, you have to eat your vegetables. It, it, what you're what you're advocating for is very unhealthy, and so so this group was was a, a refuge from that. Mm. That's one thing I have to say with with the carnivore um, movement. I have found so much love and support and forums um, that that are really easy and helpful to kind of bounce ideas off each other. I I can't say that I found that about many other. <laughs> Um, I guess groups or ideas, especially in the nutrition world, by far, I mean, there's, there's some problems here and there, but by far the carnivore world is very supportive and loving, which is really great. I'm sure you found the same thing. I th- I think it is, but on the other hand, a lot of people get turned off from those communities because there are places where people are trying very hard to stay on a carnivore diet and they don't want to see recipes that have plants in them or discussion about why why it's okay to not do it every once in a while. I think a lot of people really need the support of a group that's in, that's very focused. And so there are places where it's it's not open to talking about doing other things, but it's but it's very supportive if that's what you want to do. Mm. So <laughs> there's different personalities, I would say. Yeah, sure. Well, a lot of people come to the, this kind of, you know, diet, low carb, uh, carnivore, what have you, because of, you know, the same reason that you did, because you wanted to change your body composition, maybe wanted to lose some fat, but a lot of people notice some really surprising things along the way. What were some things that surprised you about eating this way? Well, when I first started hanging out on that forum, what I was hearing that was surprising to me was there were things like autoimmune conditions, arthritis, asthma, people were saying, Hey, I I just realized I haven't needed to use my inhaler suddenly. (laughs) But for me, it was, it was mood. So as I mentioned, I had been on antidepressants. I was diagnosed with depression, major depressive disorder when I was 20 and I had been on antidepressants. They weren't really very effective for me, but I didn't have very many alternatives. So I I was just kind of living with that. And not only was it major depressive disorder and and treatment resistant is the name for when the drugs aren't really helping. But over time, I, in my thirties, I got re-diagnosed with 
bipolar disorder, a type two bipolar disorder, which means I didn't have manias, but I, but my, but the way that my depression was presenting and the way it would alternate with uh, more <laughs> energetic and happy moods looks like the bipolar pattern. And what happened to me that was a complete surprise, although many people have reported similar things by this time, but at that time it wasn't something I was even expecting at all, is that after a very short time on the diet, my mood began to improve and become more stable. Now, I didn't make any conclusions about it that at the beginning because there, you know, there are reasons to be happy if you've been struggling with your weight for years and suddenly your weight starts normalizing very rapidly. So I, I was happy for, for external reasons, let's say. But over the course of time, it became clear that I, I was no longer experiencing anything like the bipolar disorder that I had been. My, I wasn't having depressions, no more suicidality. All of that just just completely went into remission and has now for a dozen years. It's, wow. it's, it completely changed my life, and that's why that's why I'm still doing this crazy diet after all that time. <laughs> that's amazing. I, I love the word stability, and I can't. I I don't think I could phrase it any better than that. I I noticed like when I went from low carb to carnivore, I was just a lot more stable. I was more grateful. I appreciated things more. Stress didn't bother me nearly as much. And I was already like a pretty happy person. It's not like I was like flying high all the time, but, but that stability is, I think, don't you think so many people are lacking that and they don't even know what they're missing? Absolutely. I mean, I too tend to be a happy person. And it's a funny thing to say from a depressed person's point of view, but I tend toward optimism. But after going carnivore, I just have this, this baseline that that's higher than, than the one before. And like you said, my response to stress is different. So I've certainly dealt with external issues in my life that have been extremely challenging since I started a carnivore diet, but they wouldn't send me off the rails in a way that, that, that I think, I think people I mean, we always attribute things to the external world and and it's not, I'm not saying that things don't happen to people and that there aren't tragedies and there aren't terrible things and that you sh that it's wrong to have emotional responses to that. But some things, some emotional responses are just feel more, more like you have a strong basis that you're moving from and some things it's different from when it, it really takes you down in a way that is hard to dig yourself out of. Mm, yeah, that's so well said. So nobody's perfect. And every now and again, you know, I, I don't necessarily like to call it a cheat, but maybe we have like treats here and there. We decide to try certain things. What would happen to you if you would have things that were not considered, you know, animal based in your diet? Would it be immediate that you would notice a difference? From my experience, I don't think so. Uh, I will say that because I developed this stability, it's it's extremely valuable to me. And there's a certain part of me that is just not willing to experiment too deeply with things that might throw me off my game. Because, you know, 
I, I can't go back to that way of living. For one thing, I have children and it it really made me have a hard time being a good parent when I was in the throes of, of that mood disorder. And so it's just not worth a lot of playing around. But I have had certain um, certain experiences that can allow me to speak to that. So for example, I know I'm not like someone who has an immediate intolerance response to even say gluten. Uh, if I eat something that has some gluten in it, or um, if I go to a restaurant and something spiced, I don't have an immediate crash in mood. But uh, a couple of experiences have told me that that it's not good in a more chronic term basis. So for example, in 2015, I took on a new job that provided lunches three days a week. And uh, they weren't, obviously, they weren't carnivore lunches, but they would have often some kind of meat alternative in them, but they might be spiced meat or sauced meat. And I would just kind of take the meat out and separate it. And I, I noticed that over the course of the first couple of months, maybe four months, it was a while ago, <laughs> of my job, I gained about 10 pounds. And, and now there are a lot of differences between not having that job and having that job. But I I wondered if maybe the 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 constant um, influx of non-carnivore foods, even at that small level, might be affecting me. And so I stopped eating there at all, and and my that weight did go away. My mood, I think, was probably still okay. Something that has definitely affected my mood is I, I've tried a couple of different supplements over the years. One of them affected me very acutely, and that was uh, a psyllium, just a psyllium husk fiber. I got it in my head that that uh, fiber, not being really a plant, just being a plant derivative, might have some benefit, and I should explore and see if it would. And I know there are very many different types of fiber, and I've since found out that not all of them are going to give me that response, but mm. I had an acute response. I, I was going to do it for a week. I was going to put a spoonful in my coffee every day and immediately, like within half an hour, I first couldn't concentrate and, and I felt uh, what someone else uh, described this to told me that it sounded like a panic attack to her, but wow. it just felt like, uh, I don't, not sure I would describe it as panic, but First of all, all of the things that were going on in the office, I suddenly couldn't filter out. So all the sensory information was coming at me and, and I couldn't focus. I couldn't decide what was most important for figuring out the problem I was trying to work on. And I decided to go out and sit in the car for a break and just you know, relax. I didn't really connect it necessarily to the fiber, but then, then I, I basically began sobbing uncontrollably and I had to go home. Wow. <laughs> it, it, it was really quite distressing and, and wow. I, I've never tried that particular thing again. Yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> wow. Oh, geez. But other things, a couple other things that I tried, um, 
at one point I got it into my head that maybe the basis of all of my problems that a carnivore diet was solving might've been some kind of uh, infection in the gut, like uh, a candida infection. And I don't know how much weight to put on that kind of idea, but I thought I might as well throw everything at it while it, you know, kick it while it's down. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And so I started taking some like mainly garlic extract and uh, a couple other things that were supposed to be targeted at the gut. And that did not have a, an acute effect on me, but about a week after starting that supplement regime, I found myself lying on my bed, wondering if maybe the world would be better without me. Wow. And I suddenly had this like moment, like, wait a minute, I've been here before (laughs) what's going on. (laughs) And I stopped the, I stopped the supplements and it, it went, it went away. So I can't really for sure, of course, say that that's what happened, but seeing that that kind of anomaly is something that I have only really experienced in that context and that it went away immediately. It seems to me like that was, that was what was happening. That's crazy. Well, I mean, good for you for being willing to explore and, you know, test it on yourself. And, you know, if it looks like a duck and sounds like a duck, it's probably a duck. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that said though, there are, have been a couple of things that I've had from time to time that don't seem to be giving me uh, any kind of problem. And I suspect, I mean, there are many different plant foods and they all have so many different effects. I think that some are much more benign than others. And so, you know, I've had coffee almost this whole time. I've quit it for months at a time just to, just to check. <laughs> I didn't seem to get any extra benefit, but it certainly mm. didn't disrupt the effect either. And I've had, um, from time to time, I've had dark chocolate, dill pickles, and of all, of all the foods that are probably less likely to cause a problem, I would say, you know, cucumber, which is actually a fruit and, and is, you know, is bred to be low in toxicity. If I were going to try to reintroduce some foods, I would probably start with that. And and I wouldn't really be surprised if there were some number of foods that I could have without any disruption at mm. all. I just, like I said, haven't had much motivation to. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I, of all the foods that, you know, you could include or, or mix back in after a very strict carnivore diet, I, I would agree with you hundred percent. I think those all sound very safe. You know, tons of people, including myself that continue coffee and, you know, the people around me are certainly grateful for that. So that's totally fine. <laughs> um, I want to go back, uh, not super far, but I want to go back about 19 minutes when I was reading the introduction and I was impressed by a lot of things. And first of all, I was impressed that I got through it <laughs> without stumbling <laughs> on any of the words because there are a lot of big words and you are an incredibly smart person who has accomplished a lot. And you you decided not just to take this knowledge and apply it to yourself and and see that benefit, but you decided to continue researching this and share your knowledge. What made you decide to do that? Well, thank you. I I'm an inherently very curious person, and you know, I, I didn't really start diving into the research so much for others, but for the selfish reason that. I wanted to understand what was going on. And, and I think I have come to some understandings. I've learned certainly a lot of things, but, but I still don't fundamentally know 
what the reason is that the diet had such a profound effect on me. And I don't know, you know, to what degree, if we did very rigorous scientific studies, other people's results would look like mine. I feel like there's so much to explore that could be done in a rigorous way that we, that we still don't have. But uh, mostly it was, you know, after, after my initial experience where I had approached this whole zero carb thing as something I was going to do and hope that I would lose weight again. And then I could go back to my normal low carb diet because I felt like I could probably maintain that. And if I needed to tune up with some zero carb now and then that would be that. So I was treating it like somebody treats a, a diet in the, you know, the, the kind of magazine sense of a diet, just, just a thing you do for weight loss and then you stop. But when, when I realized that it was having such a profound effect on my health, I felt really good all the time. I mean, other, just in passing, I, other things that are much more minor also improved. Like, for example, I had, I had been struggling with rosacea, where your face flushes and turns red and just stays that way. People used to sometimes ask me if I had a sunburn, and you know, I didn't. Uh, and that that just went away. So I had all these things that were feeling much better, but, but I also, I'd been brought up vegetarian and I had all these <laughs> ideas about the healthfulness of vegetables. And I wanted to know like, how important is it to get vegetables sometimes? And am I doing myself a disservice in the long run by not including these things that we've been taught? And what about RDAs and things like that. So when when I started looking into the research behind those, I was really surprised to find that the research wasn't as solid or built the way that I kind of expected it to be. We get these strong recommendations for, you know, it's really important that you eat five servings of fruit a day. That's a very specific number and recommendation. And you would think that there would be some really solid scientific basis for it. And, and I found that that wasn't really the case. So I wanted to share what I learned um, because it was so interesting to me. And <laughs> along the way, I started getting a lot of feedback from people that, that this was helping them too. And, and I really did feel good about being able to help people and reassure people because, you know, the change to my life is so profound. If other people could experience profound benefits to their life, but what's holding them back is this worry about X or Y that they've been told about the diet. And I have information about why they shouldn't worry about that. Then I really do want to share it. That's great. Wow. Five servings. There was one point, there was one point in my career that we were telling people they needed to eat nine to 11 servings of organic vegetables coming from like the best soil. And first of all, like nobody could do it. Like not even the, the trainers and nutrition coaches could even pull that off, let alone our clients. Like there's no way you're going to do that. <laughs> it's crazy. But it's um, a lot of food volume. Yeah, totally. It's tons. And it's, you, you buy all this food, bags and bags of food. You got to store it. You got to chop it. It goes bad. You got to throw it away. Like the food waste alone was insane. Um, so I guess this is kind of a two-part question. And I, I asked this really mindfully, where does the benefit of the carnivore diet come from? Does it come from 
eating more good things or removing some of the bad things? And the second part of the question is when you're removing some of the bad things, what were some of the surprising things you learned about vegetables, especially? Yeah, well, I think it's both because my diet already included meat and it was the, the rest of my diet was things that people consider to be quite good, like salads and cruciferous low carb type vegetables of various kinds. And, um, I, I think that part, part of the benefit definitely had to have come from eliminating things, but whenever you're eliminating something, you're also, you have to replace it with something. And so I was obviously eating more meat to, to quite a strong degree. I mean, imagine you're getting all your calories from animal source foods, then certain things that maybe just small components start to add up a lot. And there are, I think in our society now we think about meat in a very limited way, we think of, we, we just call it protein. Even you imagine this plate of something that some health advocate might be saying, you've got your protein deck of cards, size piece of meat, maybe, or, or maybe some kind of plant source of protein. And then everything else is where the, the perception is that's where your nutrition is coming from. And, and the nutritional value of meat is relegated to protein, but protein is, well, first of all, it's it's even a vague concept because there, it can be broken down further, obviously, into different amino acids, and and one amino acid can't take the place of another amino acid unless it's um, one of the ones that's derived from another. But even that concept, um, so there are, there are amino acids that are considered essential because you can't make them from other things, but this essentiality gets more of a halo than it really should because when something can be made from the by the body it doesn't necessarily mean that we can make it in the quantities that we need to use it or that would be optimal to use it in. Mm. and there there's so there are amino acids in meat that are not uh, essential but eating more of them may still be beneficial to your health so i'm thinking of say carnitine or taurine, which taurine has had so much study behind the almost miraculous sounding variety of benefits that can come from it. And when I see a body of research about adding more of a, a non-essential amino acid and getting all these benefits in diabetes and heart disease and uh, growth and development, it, it makes me think, well, <laughs> maybe it's not essential, but maybe from an evolutionary development standpoint, our body is expecting to be getting some of that from the outside. And so if you just relegate the, the value of meat to protein, you can overlook what it's bringing. Not to mention, for example, the, the vitamins, fat-soluble vitamins, and the value of the fat itself as calories. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about the value of fat for calories. Like that's just your wheelhouse. I'm so excited to learn from you about that. What about some of the anti-nutrients that are found in plants and vegetables, especially? Yes. So plants, of course, can't run away. <laughs> and so their, their strategy, if a plant is going to survive across generations, they need to have some defense from being eaten by herbivores and, you know, early in 
er, earlier in the history of the world that would have been mainly insects as the primary herbivore. Plants that have survived or those that have developed defense systems, some of those defenses are just physical, like thorns and hard outer exterior. But the primary way that plants defend themselves is biochemically. And there are just many classes of these anti-nutrients that specifically evolved functionally to deter <laughs> uh, herbivores from eating them. And, and sometimes the, those deterrents would be to really just kill anything that ate it. Sometimes they'd be more at a cellular level that just makes the, the attacker more uh, vulnerable or makes them unable to reproduce. And when I say this is primarily against insects, it makes it sound like, well, you know, we're really big. And so we can, we could maybe handle those things in a better way, but many of the mechanisms are actually at the cellular level and the, the cells of, of animals are really quite conserved. So I think we, we underemphasize or, or underappreciate the ability of plants to, to be toxic in various different ways. It, when you think about it, the plants that we eat, if you go into a produce section, there are many, many different varieties of plants that we're eating, but a lot of them are actually bred different varieties of one basic plant that, you know, we find something that's, that the toxicity of it is low enough that a human can handle it. And then we made many different varieties to emphasize different parts of it for either to reduce the toxicity. We've done that to some degree. Um, but ironically, when we do that, it means that we have to add our own pesticides when we're growing it because we've reduced the ability of the plant to do it itself. That's right. Um, so it's, it's kind of been like an arms race where herbivores, and we, we did come from a long line of animals that that got a lot of nutrition from plants and we inherited a lot of ability to detoxify. And I don't want to, I don't want to dismiss that, but I think what's going on in some people is that either our ability to detoxify is somehow compromised from, from something that's going on in our health or just the, the sheer amount of plant matter that, that we are being exposed to in combination with other toxins in the environment is overwhelming our system. Mm. And so when you, when you eliminate that one source of, of attack, your immune system gets a bit of a break and has time to do its other jobs like healing and repairing and, and development. Mm. That I'm so glad you brought up the breeding. That is such a great point. You and I live on opposite sides of the same hill. <laughs> We're in, just outside of Salt Lake City. You're just outside of Denver and Boulder. And we both have access to the outdoors. And I'm assuming that when you go walking around in the outdoors, you're not walking around in fields of carrots and in apple, <laughs> apple trees are just growing everywhere. Like these are not foods that just like grow all the time. You, you, you'll see perennial plants, you'll see trees and grasses and wildflowers and things like that, but not necessarily the fruits and vegetables that you mentioned that you would find in the produce section. That Those are totally different. Yeah. It's been a lot of work for us to keep 
up production with the kinds of plants that would be able to provide us nutrition. Mm, so interesting. Before we chatted today, uh, I sent you a quick message and, you know, want to discuss some of the things we were going to talk about. And one of the things that you, you brought up is something we haven't really touched in this podcast yet. And so I'm super excited to talk about what have you learned recently about mTOR? This is something that can be a little confusing or maybe controversial, although I, I don't really feel like it is, but can you tell us what is mTOR and what we need to be thinking about that? Yes. So mTOR, mTOR is a very general thing. It's a, it's a kinase biochemically, which means that it Basically, it means that it activates different proteins that do different things. And the number of different things that, that mTOR can phosphorylate is what it's called, is many, many. But the general picture is that mTOR is, a, is a prioritizing growth. So we need growth, right? <laughs> um, so things that you might think of that are associated with mTOR and growth would be like muscle hypertrophy or, or development or proliferation of proteins and things that you need. But it gets a, a bit of a bad rap on the other hand, because, because there are growth disorders. If you think of proliferation immediately, think about cancer, right? Cancer. Or over yep. proliferation. So <laughs> mTOR could be uh, something that you would want to minimize if your body is in a state where the growth is toward something that you really don't want. But saying that you want to reduce mTOR is, is a little bit like saying you want reduced growth. And of course, that's that's way too general. That's, that's way too big a hammer. Um, but people are excited about it because mTOR, things that inhibit mTOR have been found to increase longevity in certain cases. And, and so, and everyone wants that. <laughs> so, so we've got kind of mixed, mixed messages when we talk about mTOR. And one thing that, one thing that can really activate mTOR is, well, insulin is one. So if you're eating a very high carb diet, you would expect your mTOR to be high. But another thing that really strongly in, uh, activates mTOR is protein because, of course, uh, protein is a signal that you have growth materials. And so, some people have worried about a carnivore diet from the perspective of, you know, if you're eating all that meat, especially ones high in the kinds of proteins that are exactly the ones that are telling your body, hey, we can grow now, might that not be a concern? And so, that's why I. I at one point did a bit of a deep dive into mTOR to try to sort out what, you know, what, what we should be concerned about and what we shouldn't. And one thing that one conclusion that I came to from studying that is that, well, we need, our bodies need to, they, they work on cycles. And one of the cycles is cycles of, of growth and then a kind of creative destruction. So, when you, if you're eating a diet, your baseline diet is very high in all these growth factors, then you could get benefit from doing something like, well, the extreme version would be fasting. And, and we know there's a lot of research about the benefits that you can get from fasting that work in part via inhibiting mTOR, which allows your body to go into this other mode where it's, it's clearing out things that have grown 
over, <laughs> you might say, and and allowing the body to reprioritize and figure out what what it's going to do in its next growth phase. But both of those are very important. And one of the most prolific researchers in fasting and mTOR and uh, the longevity aspects of that is Walter Longo. And Walter Longo, is he believes, as far as I can tell, that the best diet for health is a plant-based diet. And I think one of the reasons that he thinks that is because the proteins that uh, make up plant proteins, if you think about even something that's more complete like soy, for example, it has a much higher proportion of non-essential proteins that are of the kind that actually inhibit mTOR more. And and so I think he sees a base diet that's plant-based to be... Uh, in in the chronic sense, better at keeping down mTOR, but because it's it would be a high carb diet that's stimulating insulin and mTOR from other aspects, he advocates for fasting for five days at a time in order to really get uh, that ketogenic mode. And I I didn't mention ketogenesis in relation to that, but if you're in ketosis mTOR inhibits ketosis. So if your ketosis is high, that's kind of a good marker of having low mTOR. So his approach would be do this alternation of a plant-based diet with long, long bouts of fasting. And they have to be long because when you are, when you're in a high carb mode of eating, you need a lot of time to get your, your hepatic glycogen levels down, basically. You get, get all of the carbohydrates out of your system before you can get into the benefits that ketogenesis or the ketogenic state will bring. But the, the cool thing about a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet is that you it's like you've compressed the cycle. Because when you're eating, you're eating a steak or something, you're, you are definitely getting a huge... Uh, anabolic hit that would be associated with high mTOR and all the good things that go along with that. But then even just over the course of overnight, you're already into that lowered mTOR catabolic state that's preparing the way for the next growth cycle. So obviously (laughs) I'm a little bit biased, but my conclusion from all of that is that you on a carnivore diet, you don't need to worry about the excessive mTOR effects because you're fasting overnight and you're already in a position to benefit maximally from from those smaller fasts. Mm. Wow. Okay. So that was so well explained. I love that. I love that you brought up Walter Longo. Um, very smart guy. I am highly critical of some of his work, especially in the last few years, as he started a food company, I believe, and he's trying to sell um, food products or supplements or something. And I just, I can't get into that. It it just, it, it seems like he's going against some of his own research. And I remember an episode of STEM Talk. Uh, we'll link to that in in the show notes. Where Ken Ford, Ken Ford, the host, is jacked. He's in his sixties. He starts to press 
Walter Longo a little bit on some of the things that he's saying. And I thought Ken Ford absolutely undressed him on air. I, I think he, he just showed so many holes in his research. And, and I just, I can't get into his work. I love his work on fasting, which I think is so important. And you're right. Like practically when I think about mTOR, when I think about insulin and all these growth pathways, I'm thinking, okay, like I definitely don't want chronically high insulin. So I'm probably going to stay away from a lot of carbohydrates. mTOR, you're right, it cycles. So why not have, you know, a, a mostly carnivore diet, eat a lot of meat, do a fast, eat once, maybe twice a day if you want, eat a lot. So I get the growth, I get, can build muscle, but then also, you know, have that fast where you're making a way for autophagy. So you get that recycling that, that you're talking about. I, to me, that makes a lot of sense. And so I'm so glad that you explained it that way, that, that, that really clears up a lot of confusion. I love that. Um, tell us also a little bit about hormesis. This is a word that gets thrown around and I don't think a lot of people appreciate what that means and how, how that plays into all of this. Yes. Hormesis is, well, the basic concept comes from toxicology and the idea is that it's often found that things that are toxic, actually, when you take or expose to a small amount of that toxin, you're better off than you were without that exposure. But then as the dose increases, the benefit goes away and it goes into obviously the toxic side mm. <laughs> uh, where, where it's actually a problem. So um, we were talking about all those anti-nutrients in plants. And so the, the natural question is, well, wouldn't it actually be better to be getting those toxins from plants? And there is research on, they call them phytochemicals. Um, some people who are more ap uh, optimistic than I am call them phytonutrients. I don't think yes. that's really fair yep. because they're not really providing them. Their mechanism of action, even when it's beneficial, isn't really a nutrient benefit of action, in the way, at least in the way I look at nutrition. But the idea being, and, and there are uh, several different compounds isolated from plants that have this property of stimulating the immune system in just such a way that the immune response is actually can be beneficial, especially for oxidative stress. So uh, ones that ones that have been particularly in the spotlight would be, for example, resveratrol, yep. which can be found in red wine. Uh, but if you <laughs> if you look at quantitatively, a lot of people will say, "Oh, well." This is an excuse to drink red wine. And I don't, even I drink some red wine, by the way, full confession here. <laughs> um, but not for resveratrol, because the amounts that you would need to get the, the same amount that has been shown in, in clinical studies to have a positive effect would be something like 5,000 liters like just wow. off the charts, incredible amount. And, and you find the same thing with um, curcumin can have some, some benefits and uh, I'm spacing on the name, forgive me, the one that's in broccoli and especially broccoli sprouts. Um, sulforaphane, is that it? Yes. Sulforaphane. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Um, sulforaphane is an interesting one because the dose seems to be, actually on the edge of plausible <laughs> you only have to eat you know maybe a, a pound or something but when i looked more deeply into into that i found out that the, there's well first of all there's variability 
in the amount of sulforaphane in 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 produce itself. And so you wouldn't necessarily, if you went down and got broccoli sprouts, you, you wouldn't necessarily have the amount that is the the uh, optimistic amount. And then it's very subject to degradation if it's stored even in the fridge or, or if it's been transported. And then there, it turns out there are other factors that are in the vegetable that can activate it or deactivate it. And those things haven't been measured to some kind of standard degree. So to me, wow. I have a lot of skepticism that you would be getting um, the proper dose. But then dose, the notion of dose itself is really important for, for other reasons. Um, so on the one hand, you may be eating as much broccoli as you can handle and still not be getting a sufficient dose. But on the other hand, because you, because you don't know where you are on this graph of benefit and then going over there, you can imagine going left to right, like you go up in a kind of inverted U and you reach this peak of optimal benefit and then you go down like a sine wave. <laughs> you don't know where you are on that with respect to your whole state of oxidative stress and exposure to various immune challenges. And if you happen to be already on the descending part of the curve, then adding extra is not necessarily a benefit. Mm -hmm. And even in the, even in the studies where we've looked at, so for example, cancer, where, where there might be a benefit to getting this uh, stimulation to your immune system to, to go against the, to, to provide antioxidants is what it does. It makes you endogenously create your own antioxidants, which you're doing all the time anyway. But in, in the case of cancer, there, there have been studies that show that some of these compounds can improve the state of cancer, but they've also shown that actually, in some cases, it makes it worse. And so how to know where you are trying to do that with just food on the one hand seems impossible. Wow. And on the other hand, seems like you just don't have enough knowledge. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. And if you eat a pound of broccoli, broccoli sprouts, whatever, like you don't even get a buzz. Like I'd rather, you know, drink <laughs> buckets of red wine, get a wicked buzz and try it that way. At least I'd have some fun with it. <laughs> um, yeah. One of the big gripes in the carnivore world is something you mentioned earlier, which is that they're, there's just not a ton of great studies that have been done, but there are like now it's seemingly tens and hundreds of thousands of anecdotes, people that are doing it, that are throwing up their hands and saying like, look, I don't, I don't know the exact science behind this, but I feel amazing. I've lost a bunch of weight. I can get tan now. My, my stomach feels better. Uh, skin issue went away. Like all these stories are, are out there. But there is also more studies coming out. And you did one last year that I would love to learn about. Can you tell us about the study you did last year? Yes, it wasn't an experimental study. And I have so many things I would love to see experiments on. But what I did was just do a review on the, the, the question that I was looking at was, can a carnivore diet provide all essential nutrients? That's the title of the paper. And so I just went through some of the research that has been done on, for, for one thing, the availability of nutrients in animal sourced foods. And as I'm sure you won't 
be surprised, but maybe some people would be actually all of the essential nutrients are available in animal sourced foods. Now, of course, some of them are, are, I would say harder to get than others, meaning it would be a less common food that you would, you would get your RDA from, but, um, the, the other aspect that I was able to go through is that it's not quite the case that we have no information because there was a, well, there was a famous explorer, Wilhelm Miller Stephenson, who went and spent some time with Arctic Inuit people. And uh, the story goes that he had been, you know, blabbing on about how the, how a diet without vegetables could be very healthy. And he actually even felt better uh, living among people on a diet without plants than he felt when he was at home. And so he was challenged to try to prove that. So he and one of his co-explorers, Carson Anderson, agreed to, under medical supervision, go on a completely plant-free diet. And they were part of the time they were in hospital and being monitored. And so they were checked for all kinds of looking for anomalies in their physiology, blood work, and for nutrient deficiencies. And in fact, they did not develop any nutrient deficiencies. And so, so that's several papers. This was in the 20s. So uh, several papers came out about that. And I think that that gets overlooked. Mm. Um, and then I also went through um, some ideas about uh, the <laughs> acid and base ideas, which, you know, if you, if you portray it in the worst possible light, it's, it's ludicrous because you, you can't really change the acid base balance in your blood very easily. It's very highly homeostatically defended, but if you give it the kind of best, <laughs> the, the best steel man, idea that you can, yes, things that you eat can be a, cha- a pH challenge that your body then has to compensate for. And it does that quite well, but what are the consequences of doing that? And, and one thing that I found was that, so, so this, get, this comes up when people say, well, okay, if you're going to be on a ketogenic diet, it has, it has these therapeutic benefits, so you should do that, but we should really encourage eating a lot of vegetables that would push you toward a a more alkaline balance. Um, and it turns out that, that um, if you, if you add alkaline, all, all that happens is that your, your body is allowed to make more acid. And so your acidity will, will actually co- completely compensate for that. In fact, you can use that as a hack. If you take a, uh, baking soda, for example, or, or potassium bicarbonate, that can actually increase your, your, some people are using it to increase performance because it allows more lactic acid to be dealt with. Wow. I didn't know And it also can increase, it can increase your ketosis. So, um, but on the other hand, (laughs) um, protein, the process of, of, uh, breaking down protein, actually can release bicarbonate from the ammonia clearing cycle. And so there are, there are birds that uh, will actually eat 
they will wait until they have a better source of protein. Let me, let me say this better. There is a cycle of, of growth of the plant environment around them. And there are some fruits that become available early in the spring and they have a lot of anti-nutrients in them. And the birds will not touch them until they, until another plant that has a high level of protein becomes available because uh, it turns out that the excess protein gives them enough um, ability to deal with the pH changes that are required to detoxify the anti-nutrients. So in other words, <laughs> eating a higher, eating uh, all those uh, anti-nutrients requires a, a certain level of acidity that protein can help you deal with. Wow. So there, there are so many interactions that uh, it turns out to be a lot more complicated than just, you know, eat your greens to fix your acidity. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's so cool. And so well explained. Um, you know, we talk about carnivores, we talk about herbivores or omnivores. What is a lipivore? <laughs> Thank you for asking. <laughs> I, I, I sort of coined this term, term, actually, it's been used before by, uh, I think his name is Andrew Durache, who's a polar bear expert, and he used that word to, to describe polar bears who eat a fairly high-fat diet. Uh, so lipivore, meaning from lipids, meaning eating fat. Um, the role of fat in the human diet, I think, has just been completely ignored in part because of the blinders that we have now from from civilization as we currently have it being based on grain agriculture and in fact i see this as thematic that a high carb diet is is considered the default in part because even the advent of writing and medicine as we know it today happened after grain agriculture. And so the whole idea of ketosis being related to, or being fasting mimicking, for example, comes from the, the baseline diet being anti-ketogenic. But if our baseline diet didn't include all this high carbon grain, we never would have compared a ketogenic diet to fasting because our diet would have already been ketogenic. Um, and before the advent of grain agriculture and, and well, you know, I don't want to make it sound like it's, it was this sudden no grain to grain based. It was a very gradual and long process, but there was a time where we, most of our calories appear to have come from actually fat from animals, which is really ironic given how how demonized animal fat is now but back before before we were even homo sapiens we have this long line of homo and uh, australopithecus before homo after we split from chimps and that that whole million few million years where we both of those species were, were differentiating. And one of the first things, well, I mean, if you look at a chimp and a human, there are some very obvious differences that stand out, even though we're obviously also 
who have a lot of similarities. But the large brain is probably the the most the one that we <laughs> like the most. But we also have much smaller guts, uh, and those are almost certainly related. There's a, a hypothesis called the expensive tissue hypothesis, which it says that the brain tissue is is a very expensive tissue. It takes a lot of energy to maintain. 20% of an adult's energy is going to this to just what's in your head, which is really pretty amazing. Um, whereas uh, intestinal tissue is also very expensive. And so the idea is that we needed to, or, or put it this way, when the pressure came off using intestinal tissue, insofar as we could give up intestinal tissue, we would have extra energy that would be available to be used to expand the brain tissue. And, and that's certainly what it looks like when you compare the intestines of a chimp or, or a gorilla or other primates that are close to us. There, we have much more small intestines proportionately, and we have given up our most of, relative to chimpanzee, most of our colons. And the function of the colon is to ferment fiber in order to give calories. Fiber is not digestible by any vertebrate, but it's digestible by microbes. And so herbivores, and to a lesser extent omnivores, have this ability, a symbiotic setup where their colons are providing a place for fiber to be turned into fat for energy. And we gave up a lot of that and we're kind of locked into the situation where we can no longer get as much uh, energy out of fiber as where, where we presumably evolved from. And the reason that, that scientists think that we did give that trade-off was so that we could have bigger brains. And the process of that brain expansion started way back in Australopithecus times, the first brain expansion that is shown by skull remains is associated with when Australopithecus started hunting, not hunting, but actually scavenging after large carnivores and, and getting what's left over after the carnivore is there. And that is the inside bone nutrition from marrow and from skulls that is very nutrient dense and very energy dense and so this dependence or making use of animal fat is, I think, an integral part of the whole human experience from millions of years before we were even humans the way that we are today. Oh, I love that. I, for the listener, as soon as this episode is done, go back and check out the episode we did with Dr. Mickey Bendor. You can also listen to the episode we did with Dr. Bill Schindler. They also confirm everything that you just said. It's It makes so much sense, and it makes a lot of sense that our brains are now shrinking, and they're not as big as they used to be because we're, we're changing our diet. We're changing the context completely. It's totally insane. And yeah, I love that concept of lipivore. I think it's really helpful to think of our evolution in that way and to make decisions about what we should be eating to have optimal health today in 2021. Amber, this has been an amazing conversation 
speaking of big brains, like you have a very big brain. Your brain is not shrinking. <laughs> um, uh, I wonder if you could distill down. <laughs> it's absolutely true. I wonder if you could distill down one simple tip that you would want to leave with the listeners from this conversation today. Sure. Uh, I always have a trouble with that question, but one thing that has really served me very well is to learn to question your assumptions. I have changed my mind many times over the course of my life through sometimes, you know, finding out that what I thought was wrong um, and sometimes finding out that just what other people thought was wrong. (laughs) Um, But, and then it's all subject to revision. And so if you can learn to, when you see uh, something on the media or even something from someone like me or someone that you have come to respect their ideas about, if something doesn't quite jive with, with what you think might make sense, go and look for yourself and, and don't be afraid to change your mind. I love that. That's science. That is that is what science is. You take a guess, you study, you see, you test it out. And if it doesn't work, you take another guess. That That is a great tip and a great way to end this conversation. Amber O'Hearn, where would you like people to go to find you and connect with you? Thank you. Uh, one of the easiest places to find me if you want to have a conversation is on Twitter. I'm Keto Carnivore there. And if you want to keep up with my latest writings, that would be on mostlyfat.com. Awesome. We will link to both of those in the show notes so people can find you. Amber, thank you so very much for everything that you do, for all your research. You have been doing this for a very long time, and you may have started you know, studying this for selfish reasons, but you continued for very selfless reasons and you're sharing the knowledge and you, your writing is great. Your blog is great. Um, we just can't thank you enough for everything that you've done. It's been a real honor and pleasure to talk to you today. And thank you very much for everything that you do. Thank you, Casey. Likewise. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.